Welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name is Kai. I'm doing a PhD in physics, and today I'm joined with Catriona. Catriona, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thanks, Kai. Um, for everyone tuning in, I am a PhD student studying the immune system. That's actually going to come up a lot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Unintentionally. Good to, good to know. <laughs> and we're also joined with a special guest today. We have Aishwarya. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. Um, my name is Aishwarya. I am a bachelor's uh, student. I'm currently thinking of majoring in physics, so we'll see how that goes. Nice. Awesome. Well, we've got a really cool show lined up for you today, and we're going to start it off with some news. So, Catriona, what, are, what have you got for us in science news? Well, have you ever had sort of a gut feeling or butterflies in your stomach? Yeah, getting some nods. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these kind of sensations that emanate from from I guess your belly region, they kind of suggest that your brain and your gut are connected. So how can we make the most of this? Um, so very premature babies are at high risk for brain damage, and more than one in ten babies are born too early. But you know. It's great because of medical advances. Not it's great that they're born premature, but because of um, fantastic medical advances, most of them survive, which is excellent. Um, but researchers have had less successful ways to prevent brain damage in, in these infants. So it's a massive problem. Um, essentially, their lungs can't deliver enough oxygen to the brain and, you know, the brain needs oxygen. So um, it's, you know, it, it causes damage. So... Without enough of, I guess, the the ability to connect uh, different sections of the brain, um, the brain kind of short circuits, and and that prevents you know messages in the brain from from getting through. But the news, researchers at the University of Vienna have found possible targets for brain damage in these extremely premature infants, and it all comes down to the bacteria in the gut, and they seem to play a key role. So they found that there was an overgrowth of a particular bacteria, um, Klebsiella, and that was that was in the gut, and it's associated with an increased presence of certain types of immune cells and the development of brain damage in premature babies. So essentially, you have more of these bacteria, you get more brain damage, and you get more immune cells, um, sort of right. trying to attack the brain. Um, so, as a gut bacteria one hundred and one. Um, these bacteria, like, they're awesome. We have so many living in our guts and they break down the food that we can't. Like, you know, fiber. We always talk about the fact that we can't break down fiber, but gut microbes can. Um, and so we have uh, – we, we get all these chemicals from them um, that, that can constantly tickle the immune system, controls inflammation, and also sends messages to the brain. Um, so the gut microbe is usually in kind of like a harmonious balance of different different species of bacteria, viruses, even fungi. Like you've got a lot of stuff living in your gut. <laughs> um, but, but not to worry. Um, in healthy people, totally fine. But in premies, so in premature babies, uh, they, there is more likely to be a shift towards worse bacteria and, and a shift away from the good bacteria. Right. Um, and, and so these shifts might be resulting in negative effects in the brain because it's that whole gut 
immune brain axis with with them all being kind of interconnected. So the research team found uh, that there were patterns in what we call the microbiome, so what kind of bacteria um, babies had, and, um, and, and the immune response. So with excessive growth of that bacteria, Klebsiella, there was you know, levels of um, or increased levels of particular type of immune cell that kind of exacerbated the brain damage. So it might be that to treat this, we need to be shifting that balance, whether it's with probiotics or, or something else. So definitely watch this space. Very nice. Awesome. Aishwarya, what news have you got? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the early results we're getting from Mars in the last few months. Um, this nice. is going to turn out to be a little bit of an update on something I think Carla mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Um, but only last Friday, the Geological Society of America released um, some stuff about Perseverance's scraping or abrasive tool. Um, and basically what it does is it scratches the rock surface and then we can see underneath the exterior to the textures and all kinds of awesome things underneath. Uh, so when they did the first drilling attempt, the core sample that they got up from there, it was actually empty. So this was, of course, very interesting and very weird. Um, so they looked around the rover and the drilling site because they thought maybe it had fallen out of the drill bit somehow. They even checked back down the hole they had drilled to make sure it wasn't stuck or anything like that, but it wasn't there. So what they had realised is that the core sample they had drilled had probably been crushed up or ground up with the force of the drilling, which is quite unusual because usually when you drill into hard rock, you get a nice, you know, solid core sample. Even when you're drilling into ice, you get like a layer of ice and then layers of rocks underneath. But yeah, everything was completely crushed up and they realised the only way for this to have happened is if it's been in contact with water for a decent amount of time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So before this, they had found, like, signs of water in the crater. But the thing is, uh, with those signs of water, it could have just been temporary, right? So the crater might have been a lake for 50 or 100 years or something, which seems like a long time to us. But <laughs> if you're a planet, obviously it's a lot shorter. Um, but what these samples show that they found now is that it wasn't just a brief period, but in fact, evidence of groundwater that was interacting with the rock mm. for a long time. Oh my God. So hope for life on Mars, maybe. <laughs> maybe. That's very cool. Well, I've got some, some news that's a little bit closer to home, even though it's on the other side of the world. Some researchers in Finland have discovered an interesting effect that's going on in their forests. And what they've noticed is that during hot summers, there is a higher concentration of organic aerosols in the air around the forest. So the, these organic aerosols include things like pollen, dust, ash, all the different things that are sort of floating around in the air that come from organic sources. Now, the thing about things floating around in the air is that they can reflect sunlight and they can also have an effect of increasing cloud cover because water will condense onto the small particles floating around and create clouds. And clouds can also increase the reflected sunlight. So what this means is that having more aerosols in the air can create cooler temperatures in the forest. 
Now, they did this observation over a seven-year period where they were measuring the temperature and the aerosol concentrations on the ground in the forest and also looking at satellite imagery of the cloud systems that were forming overhead. And what they found was that in hotter, like, in hotter seasons, so when in summer when it got hotter and it was, like, hotter than usual, there were more aerosols released than usual. Now, what this means is it creates what's called a negative feedback loop. So as the weather gets hotter, you get more aerosols, which create more clouds, which reflect more sunlight, which means it gets colder. So this is really interesting because it's the first time that anyone has observed a negative feedback loop in the climate systems. Now, they predict that this will become more pronounced as the, the global climate increases. And this is something that's really important to understand how it works and what's actually going on here, because it's going to become vital to understanding how it will impact global climate models. Now, we don't know whether this is occurring just in these forests in Finland, which are quite close to the Arctic, or if it ha- can happen elsewhere, but it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Interesting. So, today's episode of Radio Silence is going to be all about mental health. Now, a bit of a, a content warning, if, if anything mental health related might be, you know, a bit hard for, list, for you to listen to, we, we're not going to be offended if you tune out. And if it brings up anything that you need to talk to someone about, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. We're going to get into that in a sec, but here is Mental Health by Billy Raphael. Welcome back. You're listening to Radio Silence on Radio Fodder. That was Mental Health by Billy Rafal. And now, Kai, do you have some cool story for us? I do, Ashwarya. I'm going to talk about pets. Now, pets are great. We, yeah, they we... Are. <laughs> love a pet. <laughs> like, I, I don't have to use science <laughs> to prove that. But pets can also be good for mental and physical health, which is what I'm going to talk about today. Now, we know that pets provide us with a number of benefits, uh, things like companionship. They can also be good to encourage us to exercise or be a social outlet if we, you know, take a pet to the the park or something like that or, or just even send cute photos to friends. Pets can encourage us to be more social. But things like this, like we already know about, we know that walking your dog gives you exercise and exercise can be good for your physical health and also your mental health. But there's also some other interesting ways that pets can have positive effects on our state of mind. Now, there is some evidence that suggests that just patting a dog or a cat or actually any animal can have positive health effects. And now some studies have shown that patting animals can reduce blood pressure and your heart rate. And also help like regularize your breathing, relax muscle muscle tension, and all of these things are physical indications of reduced stress. Now, one of one example of these studies, they had participants pat a rabbit, a turtle, or a fluffy toy, and measured whether these these participants had these um, you know physical signs of reduced stress. And the results of this study showed that patting the rabbit and the turtle had the positive effects while the toy didn't. So, that's pretty clear that 
these effects were only observed in, you know, when you're actually patting a real animal. And something else that I thought was quite interesting from this study was that these effects were also observed in people who, you know, said that they didn't really like animals. Oh, so, like animals. <laughs> yeah, I know, but obviously they got a, a good cross section of clearly of, they do <laughs> of the community if they found people who said they didn't like animals and that they still got positive benefits just from sitting there patting one. Now, this is great because it just it shows us that just playing with a pet or you know smiling when they do something cute or funny can have these these positive uh, effects on us and. It releases, you know, the feel-good hormones, things like serotonin and dopamine, and these are important for helping us to relax and de-stress. So, pets are great, and that's that's just from being around a pet and interacting with it. It just helps you to relax, and that's great for mental health. Now, pets can also be useful in providing people with a sense of purpose and belonging, and this is important for people who suffer from loneliness or depression, just having that companion there or someone or something that's relying on you to, you know, look after it can be really helpful for people that may be going through a tough time or just, you know, need something in their life to to keep them occupied or, or like keep them company. And pets can be really great for that. And it's interesting because some people report that you know, they have a really positive relationship with their pets because it's just simpler than maintaining human relationships. <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but I think, like, my dog is probably never going to, you know, betray me or stab me in the back or something <laughs> that, that maybe your friends might do if they're not really your friends. So having a pet's pretty good for, for just, you know, you know they've got your back and a relationship with a pet is going to be a strong one if if some people in your life aren't giving you that that positive vibes that you need. I don't know, cats can be pretty like stuck up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm not really a, a cat person, so Neither. like <laughs> Good call. Actually, Although, what about you? I do I do know a lot of people who get very offended when their dog runs up and you know, kind of fusses around someone else instead of them. <laughs> it kind of feels like the ultimate betrayal. Oh, I'm sure they come back when they're hungry. <laughs> oh, of course. When they want something. Yeah. Um, now, it's not just things like, um, you know, reducing stress that pets can be good for. Uh, there have also been some claims that people who own pets can expect to live longer lives than people that don't own pets. And maybe this does have something to do with stress because they, they, the hypothesis here is that due to better mental and physical health outcomes from, you know, exercising with your dog or just feeling good when you pat an animal, like, can lead to better health overall and this is going to make you live longer. But it's actually hard to prove this. It's hard to do a definitive study that's going to show that making like having a pet is going to make you live longer because you can do a controlled study where you're patting an animal versus a toy and one has a positive effect and the other one doesn't. And you can rule out things like the placebo effect. Um, and you can make a really like strong scientific case on in some, in some instances, but it's a little bit harder because you can't really give someone a placebo animal and say like, live with it. <laughs> 
Um, so, so they can't really tell if it's true that owning a pet is going to to live make you live longer. Maybe it's just true that people who want to own pets um, do other lifestyle, like have other lifestyle factors that are going to lead to longer lives overall. Well, I'm a fan of like pet rocks. Like you know, just put some googly eyes on rocks, and that's the placebo <laughs> oh, <yeah>. done. <laughs> Maybe. And, and if yeah. you can get all the benefits from talking to your pet rock, like, go for it. I've definitely named all of my plants, so I don't know if that's the same thing or not. But <laughs> I mean, if, if it helps you out, then, like, great. Who's to tell you it's, it's weird or anything? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's important to, to realise that pet ownership may not be for everyone. And, you know, if you're going through mental health issues... Just getting a pet may not help. Um, for example, if you're stressed about your financial situation and that's you know having a toll on your life, owning a dog may not help you if you can't afford to feed it and it, it becomes another stressor that, that you don't really want in your life. Maybe in that case, plants are a better idea or even rocks. <laughs> um, but on this topic, one article that I read, um, I thought it was really funny because it said that owning a pet is like a marriage. And the reason for this is because with the right partner, it can be very fulfilling, but with the wrong one can have devastating consequences. And, you know, I I think that makes sense in that it's it's important to understand, you know, where you're going to get the benefits from and make sure you pick the right pet for you because you want to get these positive outcomes. You want to feel good around your pet. You don't want it to be a burden or anything like that. So I think it's it's really cool that there's, you know, so many positive health impacts just from owning pets. Um, and yeah, it's just great that you can, you know, hang out with an animal and it just makes you feel, it can make you feel better. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't appreciate as, as much as as they, they could, uh, given how important mental health is. And, you know, simple things like, well, exercising on its own is great. Exercising with a dog is even better. Or maybe just having a dog or I don't know what other animals do you exercise with. I guess you can play with cats, but Horses. dogs are pretty just, just go ride your horse. <laughs> ride your horse. Yeah, yeah true. Um, and, and, yeah, the other thing is, like, social impacts of pet ownership as well or social benefits, I should say. Um, you know, they say that people who walk their dog in public places or have – go to dog parks and things are much more likely to make spontaneous new relationships with the people that they, they meet. And, um, there was studies that show like the chances of a stranger coming up and talking to you when you're walking with a dog is like much, much higher than if you're just walking on your own. And, you know, that makes sense. Um, you know, it's a good way to get involved with the community. So Yeah. Definitely inclined to go up to someone if they're walking a dog just to <laughs> <laughs> suss it out, ask unnecessary questions so it can stay there, pat it for longer. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, you gotta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I miss gotta the, make the most of it. I miss the puppy parties that the university used to hold, and and it was you know for that very all the reasons that you're talking about, Kai. Like you know, it's good yeah, for your mental health yeah. to to pat a puppy. So you know, puppy parties. Bring them Imagine back. being those puppies, like, <laughs> you know, you get dragged to university and then all these people come and pat you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so mental health is is, is great um, and pets, pets can help you out there. Pat a puppy. Story of the day, pat a puppy. 
I think that's definitely something to write down for the next time my mum says, gives me a reason that we can't have a pet. I'm like, well, it's actually good <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> Thanks, Kai. Um, so our next song is going to be Hope by Arlo Parks. Welcome back to Radio Silence, where we are bringing science into focus on Radio Fodder. Um, today we're talking all about mental health, and that was Hope by Arlo Parks. Hopefully gave you a little bit of hope. <laughs> Aishwarya, what story do you have to tell us? Thanks, Ketchirina. Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the neurobiology of depression today. And I just want to reiterate that content warning that Kai gave at the start. Feel free to skip this section if um, any talk about depression or antidepressants is going to trigger you. I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable, so I won't feel bad. <laughs> so um, let's think about what depression actually looks like. Uh, if you imagine your brain and then the classic textbook drawing of two nerve cells coming in from either side and some neurotransmitters floating in between them. For a long time, we actually thought that the only thing that affected a depressive mood was the neurotransmitter serotonin. And they actually found that out by accident. Um, they were looking at some drugs that they were using to treat diseases like tuberculosis, and they had side effects of altered serotonin levels. So they found that the drugs that increased serotonin levels made people feel euphoric, and those that decreased serotonin levels made people experience the symptoms of depression. So it made sense that the traditional antidepressants that we've been using since then are SSRIs, or Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And how SSRIs work is they block nerve cells that would reabsorb or reuptake serotonin, as the name suggests, and it allows more serotonin to kind of just float around your brain and pass messages to other nerve cells. You can kind of think of it uh, as like delivering a message with a happy spin on it <laughs> instead of, like, you know, the same message, but a bit sadder. Um, <laughs> the problem with SSRIs is they don't always work. So for some people, they barely help at all. For some people, they stop working over time and they have to switch to a different brand or a different antidepressant. And this poses another problem because SSRIs actually take quite a while to take hold and affect the brain. Uh, it can take anywhere from four to eight months to start working. And wow. I know from personal experience, it was a lot closer to eight than four. So wow. at this point, you might be asking yourself, why do we even still bother with them? <laughs> the great thing is, once we realised that this, uh, these medicines should be solving this problem, we thought maybe we've got the actual problem wrong. So they did some more research um, as opposed to just accidental discovery this time, and they found that although serotonin plays a small part, the culprits are way more likely to be two other neurotransmitters called glutamate and gamma, gamma amnoburetic acid. 
or Gabba, <laughs> which I think is a lot easier to say. <laughs> um, what they found is that when someone experiences chronic stress or anxiety, or it can even just be hereditary, the connections made by these neurotransmitters between the nerve cells start to break down. And so the communication between the nerve cells deteriorates. Honestly, on a personal level, it kind of makes sense. I've definitely been uh, in a place where sometimes I feel like I'm stuck in some kind of loop. So it kind of makes sense that there's like no new information coming in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, this is where psychedelics come in. And I just want to say up top, I'm not advocating for self-medication or anything like that. It is very different to have these kinds of drugs in a supervised psychotherapy environment as opposed to at 3 a.m. in your mate's basement. That's not what we're looking at here. <laughs> right, so... There are two types of new treatments that are being researched at the moment, psychotropics and psychedelics. And psychotropics affect more of your mental chemistry um, and your mind, and these are your drugs like cannabis, ketamine, and psychedelics are the classic, you know, movie drug that distorts your perception, gives you hallucinations, that kind of thing, uh, closer along the lines of magic mushrooms. So psychotropic drugs, how they work is they actually trigger glutamate production, which was the neurotransmitter I mentioned before. And what it does is it helps you to create new pathways between your nerve cells where they've been damaged. Um, This is really helpful because what it does is allow people with depression to start over with a fresh slate and helps to create new and more validating thoughts as opposed to the old ones. Um, psychedelics, on the other hand, and by the way, again, this isn't just some person in a lab watching someone do mushrooms over and over again. (laughs) Um, it is is real science. Yeah, it's real science, I promise. Um, it's a compound created from a protein in mushrooms called psychocybin. So psychedelics put you into a kind of uh, hallucination state. And it sort of turns down your emotions a little bit, which I imagine would help a lot if you're feeling overwhelmed or experiencing a lot of emotions at once. So, yeah, it sort of resets your brain a little so that you can think about things more objectively instead of feeling inundated with a bunch of different feelings at once. Um, Of course, just like SSRIs, neither of these will work completely on their own. I believe the recommended treatment to go hand-in-hand with these drugs is CBT, or Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, Um, and that essentially helps people uh, reframe the way they think about things. And what the drugs do is they help you sit with your depression or your distress and analyse it without that extra voice in your head. Uh, which can be very confronting and uncomfortable uh, without these kinds of aids for this. So the all-important question is, do they work? And (laughs) the great answer is apparently yes. That's awesome. Uh, Yeah, there have been quite a few trials around the world. Uh, One in particular pitted ketamine treatments against traditional SSRIs And they found that not only did it perform equally as well for things such as amount of sleep, energy, appetite, mood, 
suicidal thoughts, uh, which were, they were actively um, looking at and tracking, but it also did heaps better in things they weren't even considering, like work and social functioning, general mental health and well-being, and the ability of the patients to actually feel happy at all. Uh, which is super, super amazing because I know for a lot of people, myself included, one of the worst steps about uh, getting better is the kind of in-between time before you're really able to feel happy, um, and it really sucks. But they found that where SSRIs take months to take effect, patients who took the psychedelics actually reported improvements in as little as three hours. Wow. Yeah. And the effect also lasts longer after treatment. So after one treatment, up to 60 days later, they were still feeling the positive effects. That's so good. Where SSRIs, you have to take every single day. Mm. So, yeah, it seems like this could be the future of treating mental illness. That's amazing. So positive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank- really excited for where that comes. Mm. Thanks so much for sharing that that story, but and also you know putting your own personal kind of experience in there as well. Like I, I think um, you know that that was really amazing to hear from you. Um, yeah, of thanks course. so much, Aishwara. And uh, we've got a song that I believe is a little bit of a comfort song for you. Yes, <laughs> it's all about it. It kind of helps you slow down, and so to get you into that mood, we have Vienna by Billy Joel. You're listening to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. That was Vienna by Billy Joel, and today we're talking about mental health. So, Katriona, what do you have to tell us? Um, well, look, Kay, I, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little bit isolated and lonely living alone in lockdown. It's a little bit hard. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, I, I think this, this year has been tough for a lot of us in, in Melbourne, and, and, and not just you know, limiting that to Melbourne, but but certainly it has been rough for us here. And um, while, you know, lockdown might be preventing COVID-19 transmission, which is excellent, um, <laughs> I guess I'm sort of exploring, you know, what, what else might it be doing to us? Or more importantly, what is loneliness doing to us? Yeah. Um, so popular science, I guess, has, has long suspected that stress weakens the immune system. And, and that's that kind of idea has been around for decades and it does, I guess, kind of seem like we're more likely to catch a cold or something when we're a little bit run down, overworked or, or super stressed. Um, but but really, I, I don't think people talk enough about the sort of inextricable link between mental and physical health um, because they, they are yep. so closely connected and, and mental health plays a major role in our ability to maintain good physical health. So... What do the studies say? <laughs> We're all about the studies today. <laughs> um, so th- this year, earlier this year, I was actually fortunate enough to speak to Professor Steve Cole, who's at um, UCLA, so University of California in, in LA, and he looks at how social environments influence our immune system. So I said that me being an immunologist was going <laughs> to come back into <laughs> it. It seriously wasn't intentional, but <laughs> it works. <laughs> um, <laughs> So Steve's journey in, in this area began several decades ago as a young psychology researcher, and he was looking at HIV. And he noticed that people who were not out 
were succumbing to HIV or AIDS more rapidly. Um, and, and gay men with HIV who were closeted were, were getting sick um, two to three years earlier uh, than men with HIV who were openly gay. Um, so right. just as a, as a quick 101, HIV is the infection. So living with HIV or being HIV positive just means you are infected. But um, AIDS is the disease when it progresses, you know, so much that, that you are very, very ill. Yeah. Um, and so he, he found that there was a difference, you know, between gay men who were out versus not out, but also shy gay men were also more likely to have their HIV infection progress to advance AIDS um, and, and were less likely to respond to antiretroviral treatments um, than extroverted gay men. Okay. Yeah. So he found that that was really yeah. interesting. Like, you know, yeah. what, what, what does, you know, being shy or, or being closeted really have to do with it? Like somehow emotion was being converted to disease. Um, and, and he looked at other factors, like looked at socioeconomic status, age, overall health, exercise habits, and none of them – and like none of those factors seem to be linked to how quickly AIDS progressed. Like it really did seem to come down to people's sensitivity to rejection or or what other people think of you, mm. which you know kind of makes sense um, in terms of like the whole shy closeted thing. Because if you care a lot about the judgment of others, I think particularly at that time when when AIDS was sort of yep. you know um, emerging as a pandemic. Um, you know, if you cared about the judgment of others, you, you might want to hide parts of yourself that might make you stigmatized. And at the time, sexuality was was a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to get to the science of it, essentially, um, noradrenaline, which is kind of like the sister hormone to adrenaline, um, both of which are responsible for your fight or flight response, and that's kind of like a stress response. Um, it made HIV disease progress about ten times as fast as it typically would. So that kind of like having those stress hormones circulating around you, uh, circulating around your body, um, means that HIV will progress much more rapidly to the disease. But what was actually going on? Like something about this stress and this this sensitivity reject to rejection seemed to kind of be tearing down people's immune defenses. So they weren't able to fight the virus as well. And um, I guess it's kind of a double whammy because the virus HIV attacks the immune system, so it's just <laughs> yeah. um, you know it was it was ripping it yeah. away. Um, it's a bit sucky. It's a bit of a sucky virus, just <laughs> <laughs> honestly. Just trying to like it destroys what we have, like what tools we have to fight it. Um, so that's kind of where he started. That's where Steve Cole started, and then his the story sort of jumps a few years down the track when genetic sequencing technologies kind of became more advanced. So Steve Cole started taking cheek swabs of people to, to sequence people's DNA because, yay, we could now sequence DNA much more easily um, just to have a look at what's actually happening in the immune system. Like, what is the difference? Um, so firstly, like, he was still very interested in, in um, HIV-positive people um, and, and he found, surprisingly, um, that, that there were differences and then he started moving into to loneliness. So he was looking at people who were isolated and, and people who were lonely versus people who were not as isolated or lonely. Um, and surprisingly, he found that the immune systems of lonely people behave very differently from those who are not lonely. So wow. those who were lonely, the antiviral defenses, so our defenses against viruses, they were partially shut down. 
um, which, you know, suggests kind of a possible reason as for why socially sensitive gay men who were in the closet were also more vulnerable to HIV. Yeah. Yeah. It all started making sense and, like, coming together. Um, And it didn't just stop there. So not only um, are people's antiviral defences sort of dampened or shut down, um, it also is dialing up inflammation to various levels. So your your antiviral defences are going down, but your inflammation is going up. Um, and so that that's what he found in lonely people. Um, so inflammation, it's a good thing in small doses. Like when you get a cut, you, you get a bit of inflammation at the side. That kind of brings in all your immune cells to, to the cut to fight off anything that potentially goes through your skin. That's great. Um, it, it does keep any infections from spreading through your body. But when there isn't the threat of an intruder, inflammation can be dangerous. Like chronic inflammation can lead to numerous health problems like heart disease, arthritis, depression, um, Alzheimer's disease, and even some cancers. So what's happening in the case of loneliness is that being isolated triggered inflammation the same way that a physical injury like a cut would, except without the fail-safe. So when you have a cut, there are some handbrakes that will, you know, like make the immune system kind of dial back a little bit. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But there, there, there were no sort of breaks keeping inflammation in check um, and, and it kind of left people's immune systems as kind of a default, you can't fight viruses, but you're going to fight your own body kind of mode. <laughs> um, That's not no, good. No, it's, it's – <laughs> in summary, it is not good. <laughs> <laughs> So in, in 2010, not just Steve Cole's research, but, but um, several researchers kind of reviewed a whole lot of different research studies to, to look at different factors um, that contribute to various health problems. And they concluded that being lonely is worse, from your, worse for your health than drinking alcohol or not exercising, which wow. I just think is astounding. Like the impact on your physical health of being lonely. Um, and, wow. and it also emerged as a risk factor for early death to the same degree as smoking. Like oh my wow. loneliness is the new smoking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, this is, this is crazy, right? And it's, it's a bigger risk factor for early death than, than obesity. Like, um, well, at least according to that's, this study. That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> um, so all of these pieces are sort of coming together, looking at the impact of, of loneliness, isolation, and um, I guess kind of stigma in a way, um, and, and that influences your physical health. So back to Steve Cole, like, you know, now armed with this kind of information, um, he, he sort of has been accumulating studies that show um, that, that you've got your weakened viral antiviral responses as well as your increased inflammation among people in socially marginalized and isolated groups. So, you know, first looking at, at HIV and um, sexuality and then looking at, at lonely and isolated people. Um, he also looked at uh, poverty um, and, and other types of adversity. And then he started looking at the impacts of racial discrimination, which I think is, is really right. interesting. Um, and I don't want to sort of get into this too much, but um, essentially the research team found that there were higher levels of um, 
markers of inflammation and weaker antiviral responses in African-American participants of their study compared to Caucasian participants. Um, and just to make sure it was a fair comparison, they did check that other factors like you know financial stress and things like that weren't the culprit. So it, it really did come down to the experiences of racism that accounted for this. Wow. And, wow. Yeah, which is it, – it's crazy. And um, I think they, they said that it might account for as much as 50% of the heightened inflammation among African Americans, um, including those who are uh, positive for HIV, which is just double whammy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was really interesting to see that, that racism – played a role in, um, or, or rather your experience of racism and isolation particularly, um, you know, plays a role in, in, I guess, the disparity between different groups' health status. Um, so, yeah, from there, the evidence just kept accumulating. Um, so not only does loneliness affect the immune system, it affects heart health, um, and it does that by increasing your circulating stress hormone levels and your blood pressure, so that's not great for your heart. Um, people who are lonely do tend to have more depressive symptoms. Um, it does affect your eating habits. I mean, if you're lonely, you might be more likely to eat a more unhealthy diet, and it can destroy your sleep quality. Even if you're like you know trying to sleep, it can actually destroy the quality of that sleep. It's not as regenerative. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So yeah, there you have it. Like loneliness. Feelings of isolation and discrimination, they're, they're all kind of tied to our physical health and loneliness can create a downward spiral that's kind of difficult to, to kind of combat. So, you know, um, maybe get a pet. <laughs> like yeah, a or a plant. <laughs> or, or a plant or a rock with, with googly eyes. Um, but, yeah, certainly these feelings of, of loneliness and isolation doesn't necessarily mean you are alone. But it's the feeling of being isolated yeah. that, that's yeah. bad. So, um, you know, hopefully if you're having any issues, you can speak out to, to people and get help. Yeah, wow. That's that's really eye-opening how big of a deal loneliness is, Katrina. So, thanks for that. And if anything in today's episode has brought up issues for you and you need someone to talk, at, talk to, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. So that's it for today's episode of Radio Silence, talking about mental health. Uh, remember, you can follow us on Twitter. You can catch our episodes on SoundCloud. But as of very recently, you can also find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts as well if SoundCloud doesn't work for you. So check Sorry. us out. Taking over the world. <laughs> cool. All right. And to finish us up today, we've got Lonely by Akon. See you next time.